The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, joined by my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? They are going brilliantly, as always, Brandon. Today, just before this podcast, I went to my crazy French gym place. Have I ever mentioned this to you before? No, I love it, though. Crazy French gym place. I'm intrigued. It's called Iron Body Fit. And you can tell it's French because those are three words that all make sense in English, but you would never string together for whatever reason. And so what it is, is EMS, electrical muscular stimulation. And so they put you in this vest and armbands and leg bands and belt thing, and then they plug you in to electricity. And for 20 minutes, you like do a squat And then the electricity goes through you and your whole body shakes. And if you don't tense your muscles, it really, really hurts. But if you do tense your muscles, it's kind of cool. It tickles a little bit. And they say that if you do that for 20 minutes, the equivalent of four hours in the gym. Four hours. Uh I have no idea. (laughs) I feel like this is like those, those 1940s waistbands that they put around women to shake their hips. Yeah, but you're not like just shaking the fat. You're like making all of your muscles contract. And if you miss it and you don't contract your muscles... It is the most horrific feeling in the world. And your body is kind of locked in position and you can't move and you can't do anything for about 10 seconds. And then it releases again. It's like torture, basically. But it's like, <laughs> but when you do it right, it's like fun and entertaining and a little bit tickly and just crazy. So I've been doing it for about a year now and yeah, really love it. I can't say I've seen any actual changes in my body, but like for entertainment value alone, I recommend it. Okay. Wow. So you've been doing it for a year. Mm-hmm. Can you not That's tell? incredible. So it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can tell. Yes. Yes. You look fabulous fit. And what was the wording again? The Iron body fit. So I have a body of iron now. Body of iron. I think somehow this does actually segue into the topic for today, which is efficiency and growth. So it's the iron body of efficiency within SaaS organizations. We have a new world in which we live, which is all about efficiency, which has now been in place for, I suppose, the last 18, 24 months. We have a wonderful guest in Reese Howe, who's going to be joining us shortly to have that discussion. But just before we get to that, again, a bit of a back and forth between Bethany and myself. And I guess what I wanted to start with today was there's this fellow named Christopher Jantz. He's, uh, he works for Nine Point Capital as one of their VCs, and he does their infamous SaaS napkin. I'm not sure if you've been to SaaS stock before, Bethany, but uh, he does the SaaS napkin. He does a survey every year called What Matters to Investors, and they have seven criteria that sit on that list. The one that's really shot up, no surprise here, where investors are much more interested in capital efficiency in 2023, I think the interesting bit was that they're still very much interested in the same level of growth. And really his his takeaway, and I guess our takeaway in some sense as a starting point, is that he wants his companies and his portfolio to do more with less, essentially. Get the same results, do it with less people. And riffing off of that, there was two initial thoughts that I wanted to throw at you. The first one was kind of the obvious that everyone is doing in tech right now, which is they're getting to efficiency by 
laying off people, reducing headcount, freezing headcount, reducing software spend, all the usual culprits. Obviously, there's unintended consequences for these types of activities. But I think the interesting question for us is not that one, but the question around how do you do more with less people? It's a real challenge. And one of my hypotheses is that not having great product market fit for many companies was masked by having bigger teams and spending more on growth. And what I think is going to have to happen is have more focus on that product market fit earlier, wait to see the hyper growth or expansive growth until you know that you actually have something that people want and you can deliver it efficiently. There is no silver bullet on that one. It's kind of like the opposite of a silver bullet. It's getting really back down to your fundamentals and finding very strong product leaders and people who can think about product and commercial earlier in the business. I don't know about you, Brandon, but I see product leaders being hired pretty late, relatively. Yeah. I think a lot of companies are put in this position or have been historically where they have some level of product market fit and they get a big cash infusion of of X and then they're expected to deliver a new metric set. And then what ends up happening, this growth at all costs phenomenon, which is our 50% growth rate or 80% growth rate, we have to hit that number at all costs. What that means in practice is that they are unwilling to let go of headcount from a sales point of view, where maybe they're filling a quota of 50%, 40%, 30%, literally didn't matter because they were adding AR to the business. And I think equally on the marketing side, when it came to paid spend, maybe those campaigns weren't quite delivering the right kind of LTV to CAC, but again, it was adding net ARR to the business. And that was simply more important than anything else. And I feel like that growth at all costs mantra really is now catching up to a lot of folks. Absolutely. And I think on top of the points that you make around like having a less than efficient sales team and less than efficient marketing, you also have a sales team with a little bit more remit to sell off roadmap. Because again, if you have a large customer that's willing to buy anything, you'll sell it. That makes building the right product for the rest of the team quite difficult and or creating more costs by needing to bring in a customer success team who can paper over the gaps in the product. Another hypothesis of mine is that customer success pretty much exists in most companies as the missing parts of the product. I think you're exactly right again. I feel like the customer success has been used as a tool where any kind of product failure or something that's not working quite right, you paper it over with customer success to alleviate that pain until you deal with it at a later stage. And to your point, the latitude to do that where you're not getting a real cost efficiency out of your CS team in that case. And it's also just a lot more expense that you needed to come out of your business one way or another. But for me, it feels like it's getting back to the fundamentals. So the other one that I was thinking about was this basic idea of are employees actually engaged and excited to come to work? Because when you think about the base core of productivity, that's where it all comes from. <laughs> it sounds a bit silly now that I'm saying that. Do you want to come to work on Monday and actually do something useful? Like I've been thinking about it a lot because I've been thinking about leadership a lot recently and like what are expectations of being a leader and what kind of team do you want and what's realistic? And can you actually make everybody want to come to work on a Monday? And is that really the goal or is the goal is lots of people like coming to work on a Monday for whatever reason and others just aren't crying and are happy to come to work and they're productive and add 
to the business, but they have other things outside of work that are more important. And is that okay? I've just been having some existential questions around leadership and work and a bit of like drinking the Kool-Aid that seems to be required in working in startups and this feeling that in order to be efficient, well, first of all, just this understanding and assumption that the point of all startups is to make as much money as possible as quickly as possible. And maybe it is for tech startups because we have like these investors and shareholders that ultimately want great returns. But like we only have one life and we're all here and work is a lot more than just making money. And for me nowadays, making money isn't the thing that motivates me. I'm obviously in like a privileged position where it doesn't have to be the piece that motivates me. But I think there are a lot of people that it's a means to an end rather than the end in and of itself. And that's okay. And so can you run an efficient business just being human? And so having people who like coming to work because you're not a dick and the environment is quite pleasant, but they don't have to believe in everything and they don't have to spend their life thinking about work, but you can still get a lot of efficiency out of them or, you know, like a lot of work because it doesn't kill their soul. Am I just sounding like really negative about what it is to be a worker? <laughs> no, no. I mean, there's something here because I, I feel like in every company I've worked in, we're, I feel like we're always trying to do that. We're trying to, you know, the vision of the company, the purpose of the company, the, the strategy of the company, where the company's headed, why that's tremendously exciting. So much time and effort is spent on that and trying to create that feeling within the company. And it is very hard. It is very challenging to get every person in the company feeling that way. And to your point, maybe it's a fool's game or a fool's errand in some respects. And we, being leadership, need to reflect on the fact that fundamentally people are going to want different things and there's nothing wrong with that. And even if they're not a, a missionary of the company, which is what we are and what we want, maybe that's okay. And maybe there's a different a different style of working that's possible, embracing that. We're saying, yes, that is the case with certain people. And you know what? That's perfectly fine. And if that's perfectly fine, what does that now mean to what we need to focus on from a leadership point of view? Yeah. And also what kind of leader do we need to be and how do we motivate more broadly teams? Because not everybody in every team is motivated by making money or beating the competition or producing great shareholder returns, which is ultimately what we talk about because we're shareholders and we have other people who are greater shareholders and that's what we're aligned to. I think a lot of people come to work to make money and also to make connections with other people and to enjoy who they work with, regardless of what it is that they're doing. And so it's like creating an environment in which people can make meaningful connections with each other and through clear direction and understanding of what we're looking to achieve, it doesn't need to be the biggest, boldest vision in the world. It can be a clear strategy with a goal in mind with a bunch of people that you like working with. Yeah, because when you think about it, a lot of companies are in this boat, right? So if you're a B2B SaaS vendor for tax compliance, how exciting and what kind of mission and purpose is that? I mean, it's not thrilling in my view. A lot of the feedback that I've seen in EMPS scores specifically is that what they value tremendously and almost the reason why they're still the company is because they like their immediate team that they work with, irrespective of anything else in the company. So to your point, maybe there's something in that where there's a different set of activities we would do as leaders in the business to really support the team level in that sense. Yeah. And I think right now, 
in this world of efficiency and we don't get to do all of the posh trips and have that fun. And you maybe aren't providing as many lunches and as many L and D opportunities as previously. Those are all shortcuts to culture and shortcuts to making people happy and showing an investment. So what can you do that's free, but properly meaningful and creating an environment in which people want to work is a massive one. Yeah. Yeah. In that respect, there's two things that pop into my head. One is the idea of a line manager in a company. I was reading some article, I can't even remember where I read it now, but essentially they, I don't know if they fired their line managers. I don't know if you can fire line managers in this case, but what they ended up doing was they brought in a bunch of external coaches that actually did the so-called line management part of it, where they talked to those individuals around how to unblock themselves, how to rethink a problem area. And they weren't experts in the business, but they were experts in being a coach. And that company, as an example, that was a spectacular experiment and it worked very, very well. So you can imagine for individuals and companies where, like you said, there's different motivations that they have. And one element for sure is less about line management with unskilled line managers is something much more around coaching and really self-actualization, which is I'm trying to be the best version of myself in a way that I want, not the way that the company wants. And if there's a coach in place to help me get there, that has both the alignment with the organization, but also very much aligned with myself in terms of coaching, just like any coach would. That seems to be an interesting idea. I agree with you. I think this is, I haven't seen that article. It'd be great to share afterwards. I just think the rules of the game have changed, or maybe we're recognizing the game more. And so how do we build businesses that are successful and also fulfilling for the people who spend time in them? Lovely. So why don't we wrap here and we will move on to our chat with Reese Howe. I'm delighted to welcome Reese Howe to the podcast today. Hi, Reese. Hi, Beth. Great to be here. Thank you. So Reese is somebody that Brandon and I have both known for many years. Brandon, for a few more years than I, or maybe a bit better, Reese headed up and led the finance function at Signal AI for quite a while, all the way through to Series D. And Reese is now CFO at C2. And we have brought Reese on today to talk about efficiency. It's one of those that we're all veterans of remembering what it was like when we had valuations that were. 10x ARR, or sometimes even 8x. Many listeners have not experienced that, but are doing it for the first time. So we thought it'd be interesting to bring somebody on who can really talk about capital efficiency and growth. And what do you do when you can't raise crazy valuations and just throw money at the problems? So Reese, our first question to you is, when you hear capital efficiency, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I guess the first things that come to mind are burn ratio and rule of 40. And I guess the first things that, that you think about are, you know, what are the metrics and, and how do we measure it? But stepping back as someone who hasn't been in startups their entire professional life, it's actually kind of refreshing to hear capital efficiency because having been in you know, VC-backed startups for so coming up to 10 years, one of the earliest things that you that you kind of learn or you learned in that period was that capital efficiency isn't actually that important. And and it could be quite a it was quite an eye-opener to be entering into a market or an industry where capital efficiency isn't something that people think about too much. And and really what we've had is 10 years of great deal of capital floating around and being available to high growth startups 
with the reality is that the the companies are going to be worth a lot more in the future based purely on their revenue and not on taking into account how well they're using their cash. And a lot of companies have had cash available, huge amounts of cash available for for a long time where where growth is really the only thing that's that's important. And I guess now, I guess for the last year and a half, we've entered into this period where cash is not quite as easily available for, for most companies. Some It's a lot less available and capital efficiency is, I guess, a, a lot of finance people are finding allows them to come into their own. And really the running a, a startup or scale up, especially in, in tech, isn't just about growing revenue, but it's also about balancing the cash and the costs and, and allowing more tools to be to be put to use, I guess. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And, you know, in our preamble, we talked about exactly that, which is this growth at all costs mantra that's been prevalent for many, many years now, which has now come to an end you know, this past year. The question of how you take an organization that's used to growth at all costs and shifting it culturally to something different. How do you do that in an organization? Because you're, you're used to a certain type of spend and a certain kind of excess spend, if you want to call it that, and to take the culture of the company and have them recognize that something different needs to be done and they need to get behind it. How do you make that cultural shift? Really, one of the, the best ways that I find from of moving from, from sort of the, the mentality that we had two years ago to came in about 18 months ago is making sure that the people in the organization at all levels understand the company's performance, its metrics, the funding environment, the, the reality that we're in. And without people having that that context, they may think that the challenges of, you know, moving to a company that's having efficient growth rather than all out growth is isolated to their own company. But once once people understand this is the entire market, you know, the the world has changed and until we see close to zero percent interest rates again, it's likely to be staying like this and efficiency is important for investors, for owners, for VCs, that people will adapt and they'll take that on board and they'll be considering how can we do this cheaper. So I think the communication, you know, obviously starting from the top, but right the way across the company, explaining where we are, what we need to achieve. As long as you've got bought-in employees, they're going to appreciate that your company isn't different from any of the other companies that that are out there. It's not, you know, you need to, to flee from this ship. It's all ships are in the same situation and we all need to work together to, to think about how we can grow efficiently and, you know, how we can continue to maintain either, you know, our valuations or our metrics or the objectives that we as a company have set. And then one double click question. Have you as a CFO of the organization implemented any policies around this? So it's one thing to have contextual understanding to communicate it effectively. And then beyond that, is there any other practicalities that you would think about in terms of shifting the culture? And I guess in a way, policies force that to, to some extent. But is there anything else that you would uh, consider in that, in that frame? I suppose I wouldn't say we've got anything transformative versus what we had before. So we've always had, um, I've always put in systems to make spending decisions a little bit less arbitrary and a bit more structured and formal. So requiring people to pull together business cases for new spend or business cases for for new employees and go through a thought process of, do you need this additional spend or are you able to do it in some way with your existing budget? So it's just prompting people. But these days, I guess, with greater visibility by the, the senior management, I definitely haven't, I mean, there's the uh, the Eric Schmidt story of how we got Google spend under control in, in his early days of saying, if you want to spend anything, you need to be at my desk at 10 a.m. on a Friday. 
and and he'd have a queue at his desk and uh, at 10.30, that's when he'd stop being at his desk or stop taking any more spend requests. We haven't done anything anything wild and crazy like that. But I think once you get people aligned on what are our objectives and, and what are our spend objectives and what are our financial limitations, I would say probably the main thing is giving people more visibility on our metrics in one way versus where we were before, definitely to make spending seem or spending decisions seem a lot less arbitrary. Do you share your cash balance and runway with the full company? Yeah, we do. Because that's one that I've seen sometimes companies are comfortable sharing it. Other times it's a feeling that you might be freaking out the team. Maybe you do it when you need to, but not every single month. What made you decide that it was something worth sharing? And how is the team handling knowing that level of information? You know, it's, it's definitely confidential and you wouldn't share outside the company, but we trust our team not to be screenshotting and, and emailing it. I think it's super valuable because you can kind of, on the inside, you can kind of hope that, you know, if I don't share this information, then people will just assume it's all fine and they won't worry. Whereas I think in reality, for a lot of people, if you don't share the information, they do worry. I guess having them feel that that's a, there's this level of trust that you can share information with them, you get a greater sense of confidence from the team that, that the company is being managed better. Yeah, we are. We have been in a net cash burning situation, so people generally want to be conscious about you know what their impact is on our on our cash balance, our cash runaway, whether they're whether they're selling stuff or whether they're buying stuff. But I guess so. My question was slightly different, which isn't just like trusting them not to go outside of the company, but trusting that they can handle that level of information because you definitely have people who are more savvy on how these businesses work and how much money is a not scary amount of money and how much runway is a not scary amount of runway. But then you have others who've come from maybe more traditional businesses that already kind of freak out when they find out that the business is not profit-making and they're like, but how can a business not be profit-making? Did you find you had to spend time educating the company on what this meant? And do you have certain people who freaked out about it or on the whole, has everybody just accepted this and it's not an undue amount of stress? I think everyone has generally accepted it. I think it's probably not something that we've, I mean, we haven't been in a situation where we have a very short amount of cash left available. And I, I can imagine we would deal with that differently, but give, giving people visibility of we've got a bunch of cash in the bank, we've got runway till X and you know X, that, that date is predicated on certain levels of sales, like sales targets that have already been discussed and budgets that have been discussed with you know each person or each person's manager. I don't worry that people are going to freak out because I know all of them who joined the company have joined to be part of a growth story and understanding that we are investor backed and we are going to continue to need to be investor backed until we reach that cash break even point which isn't going to happen you know, next week or next month or, or next quarter. It's some time off. They've joined the company with, with the understanding that this isn't a huge company with you know, 500 billion in the bank. This is a, a small company. It's a scale up. There's a level of risk, but also there's a level of reward. And I've not had anyone freaking out. But on the other hand, if someone was going to be freaking out, they probably shouldn't be at the company because... If they're going to be freaking out that sort of thing, then they've probably not been educated into what sort of company they're joining, how big it is, what the level of risk that's associated with expected, you know, ultra growth. One thing that I was thinking about was 
this idea of the blunt force instrument that most companies have used where they've laid off people or there's a hiring freeze or they're cutting SaaS spending, that doesn't require a lot of thoughtfulness. I think what does require a lot more thoughtfulness is this idea of getting more out of the existing people that you have. And I think that's quite challenging. And when you think about that question, which is getting more from less, how do you do that? What comes to mind? I think that sort of falls to individual managers to work out with their own team and isn't done very effectively when these sorts of decisions are being made just by the CFO and COO and CEO in a room with a financial model. I think that doesn't, that doesn't make sense at all. I think that that responsibility of getting teams to be more productive and more efficient, it really should fall to the departmental managers to they and their teams have the best visibility of what everyone is working on and what can be dropped. It's not ever a case of we've got these people working 100%, let's get rid of 20% of them and get the rest of them to work at 125%. That you know, it, it doesn't make sense and, and can only ever happen on the spreadsheet. Giving departments responsibility and then having this level of communication going up between you know, the teams and the individuals all the way to the management team. And I guess you, you need to make some tough decisions because a lot of the answer a lot of the time is what, what are we going to stop doing? Like, what are the things that are the least efficient in the company? We obviously don't want to completely kill our growth prospects, but some projects have been funded in the past that don't make sense for the company or are not as effective as, as other projects. And where we had lots of cash and we could test out lots and lots of different things that made sense where cash is more restricted it's more about going okay these are the these are the things that we absolutely need to get right these are some bets that we want to place and then everything else let's let's drop it or kill it and we can come back to it when we've got the core business we are functioning hopefully throwing off cash and we can start experimenting and trying to move more products to product market fit later in the day and seeing what the what the markets are for those but in the meantime, I think it's reducing the number of things that you do, not trying to do the same number of things with fewer people or trying to do a little bit less of everything with the same number or fewer number of people. That makes sense. And it's interesting we were talking about letting departments figure out for themselves. So this is one of those things where you see it in maturing companies, but it always seems to be a bit of a conflict. Not Maybe it's not different sets of desires between, let's say, the CFO and the rest of the of the exco on budgets, as in not once we've created a budget, but then handing those budgets down and then letting holding people to account of that budget. What is your preference? Everybody gets one at the start of the year and they manage to it, but as a startup, things are changing quickly. Do you rebudget often? Do you hold all of the money yourself and you allocate it as needed? How much level of control do you keep on the money? I think in in startups, particularly, the future is, is incredibly unknown versus your, your your very stable larger companies that are just you know maintaining the same levels of revenue and margins month after month, quarter after quarter. Really, the the budget is is hopefully a roadmap to the end of the year. But in reality, we know that almost everything is going to be different. I guess. Literally everything, even even the marketing budget, which you know can be committed a year ahead. We know it's we know the actual spend is going to be different by the end of the year. So I think using it as a as a roadmap for the teams, but revisiting it, like reporting to the the team budget holders, and revisiting it on you know these days at least a quarterly basis. Probably a few years ago, you know, half yearly was fine, but at least on a quarterly basis, 
of saying, you know, this is what we've planned. These are the hires that you wanted. This is the spend that you wanted. Is this still reasonable? Like, given the given the revenue we've got, given the growth expectations, given our cash situation, you know, is this actually even what you need? And usually the answer is no, and you end up revisiting the budget on a, I guess, a, you know, at least at least quarterly with the entire management team. I am of the view that budgets should be agreed with the management team before being presented to the board for sign off, and the management team should have a detailed understanding of what the spend is on who we're going to hire and why and where we expect our revenues and cash to be coming from and what the, the key assumptions are behind that. And that allows the entire management team to have input and take a level of ownership and responsibility. Once that's done, I much prefer each functional lead to feel as though they own that part of the budget. And not, not I mean, like they, they get a pot, a pot of money that's held in a bank account for them, but that they have the sensibility to go, okay, I know as a company what we need to achieve and I know what I and my team need to achieve. And, you know, if two months after the budget has been set, I decide actually I don't need a, this sort of engineer, I need a product person instead, then that's for them to make that decision, not for that to have to come to you know, the, the board and management team or you know, CFO, COO, CEO to debate as to whether they're making the right decision. But I think as long as the budget and the outlook, the forecast are are revisited on a regular basis. Everyone's going to be making intelligent decisions on behalf of the company and their team. Perfect. And then uh, a different uh, question. When you think about uh, COOs and what you expect from that CEO in terms of driving efficiency as the CEO for the organization, what is that? And I guess the second part of the question, which might dovetail slightly, is just around organizational KPIs around efficiency, because usually the operations professional or the CEO in this case tends to focus quite heavily on those types of metrics uh, paired with the CFO in this case. So I'm just curious, expectations around the CEO and also the shared responsibility around efficiency metrics? You know, very much depends on the stage of the organization because in the very early days when you don't really have that many people, it's not really clear on what you're going to be selling or doing or building. I think that one of the most valuable things that the COO can do is go around fixing things and, and understanding the interplay between the different departments and what's falling through the gaps. And, you know, many times when, when we worked together, granted at Signal AI, there were things where you just saw sort of work being done by one team and just being dumped in a bucket and completely left by the other teams and you know, people totally working at cross purposes. And, and one of the unique things that the COO can do is see all of this and, and understand exactly what's going on from all the teams. And they're one of the few people that is truly enabled to actually fix those problems. You know, when you get past that stage and you're sort of looking at the longer ter- term horizon, like you're able to like start considering say nine months or 12 months down the line rather than week to week, month to month. I think the, the CEO can be super effective in planning out the processes and systems that will enable the next stage of growth and will stop you know the whole thing from falling apart once you hit too many staff or too many customers. There's no such things either, but once you hit that point where you haven't built what you need for the next stage. And I think that I mean the CEO and the COO and the CFO should be you know working together brilliantly as a team to truly understand you know how the organization actually is working where the financial flows are make investment decisions i also think the ceo can be a cheerleader and early adopter of processes and technology whether it's um, new pieces of software or automation that can help improve the efficiency of the organization so it's not just we're getting busier let's hire another person but if we invest 
in this bit of technology, we won't need so many people six months, one year down the line. And I think the COO is, is best placed to, to be that cheerleader for organization. In terms of metrics, I think, you know, there's a whole suite of metrics that the company needs to be looking at. And a lot of them, or all of them, you know, apart from revenue growth are going to be, you know, efficiency related. And I think the COO does have the knowledge and the breadth of skills and, and the oversight to be able to pull the levers on a lot of these, whether it's like, whether it's gross margin or gross burn or working with different teams to make sure that the flows of information are, are actually happening and each team is getting the information they need. They have, you know, the processes in place for bringing new products to market or the processes in place for bringing new people on board and integrating them with the wider organization. I think all of these, uh, I think, yeah, hugely come within the remit of the COO. Okay, a tactical question now. A lot of companies, most of the ones that we know as well, they tend to oversubscribe in terms of SaaS subscriptions all over the place for all sorts of things. Half the tools don't get used or they get used poorly. And ultimately, for a lot of companies, you end up using a very small portion of them. And I think there's been a lot of baggage carried by a lot of companies for quite some time. And now with you know efficiency as the, the groove, there's wholesale cutting of SaaS applications all you know uh, across the board pretty much. I feel like there's more of a gravitational pull towards operations really embedding itself in functional units. So as an example, you're starting to see much more product operations as a real profession where people are thinking about how do we operate the function of product management in a way that's useful and that operations professional will use tooling and license something, but then operationally, somebody's dedicated to actually configuring it, making it work effectively and become useful for the team. So the whole operations profession, I feel, is coming to the forefront in these times of SaaS cutting where people are really trying to figure out how do we get value from this stuff as opposed to licensing everything under the sun and then cutting half of it when things turn bad in this case. I absolutely agree. I think you know any technology or any tools that you have do have a cost of ownership. And if you don't have someone who's there to own them and to get the value out for, for the teams that is going to be using them, then those tools won't get used to the best of their abilities and, and people won't benefit from them. And then you end up with these situations where people aren't using the tool and you're spending it or you know people are using the tool a little bit, end up wasting a lot of time not adding any value to the company and you've still got the spend. And I don't think in a lot of cases, just, you know, cutting that software isn't necessarily the right answer. The answer is getting people to getting someone to own that software and make sure that everyone is getting the best value out of it. Because usually you bought the software for a reason, which is that you've got a problem that software can fix that problem. And um, I think operations is, is definitely very well placed to take that, that ownership. Absolutely. I love the idea. Don't buy tech unless there's a clear owner rather than, you know, the one person who decides they like it and then walks away from it. That happens a lot in sales because it'll be like the sales leader who wants the piece of tech, but then it'll end up being somebody in RevOps who has to own it. But you need, it's not just the person who owns the technology. It's also who's accountable for having spent that much money and making sure that neck is on the line for the entire process, not just, yeah, it was awesome. And then they walk away. So I have a question for both of you, actually, because this is something that it seems to be within organizations, a pendulum that swings one side to the other and neither, and it never really sticks either way. And I'd love to hear if you've seen it be successful and stay in one area, which is basically all of these ops people you're speaking about. So marketing ops, rev ops, finance ops, product ops, 
reporting and sitting in their functions with a dotted line to an ops leader or all sitting together in a team, direct reporting into the ops leader, dotted line into each of the areas that they support. I have seen both and I have seen it swing back and forth within an organization. What's your preference and what do you see work better? I guess my preference in my experience works in finance is to have all the ops people working together and reporting into ops and supporting the teams or being being embedded in those teams, but essentially being an, an ops person. It does work both ways, but I think those people being considered part of the same ops team and being able to communicate and share best practices and share tools um, is a lot easier if they're all on the same team rather than if you have an ops person in one department who's you know wanting to say subscribe to a piece of software and isn't necessarily clear that someone another ops person is also subscribing to that software they don't need another license it already works it's already there so my preference would be to see the ops people all working working together yeah, and I would double down on that because I, I feel like from my point of view, uh, the operations professional in the organization is the person that cares tremendously about the holistic situation in the company and their invested interest is to ensure that the best thing happens for the company. So I think with the uh, the individuals being embedded in the teams where they have a dotted line into the product function as an example, and they're doing fabulous work there, that's great. And they get a lot of uh, direction in terms of the function itself from the product leader in that case. But to your point, the actual full line goes into the operations manager in this case. A lot of the best practices, shared information across the organization, especially in operation, because there's so much kind of back-channel information that you're trying to collate together in some ways. And I think having those eyes and ears on the ground and having that line management responsibility with the operations leader in this case, you can really see and hear what's happening within the organization and ensure that each operations professional is deployed in a way that's the most effective for the function. I think that's really helpful. It's interesting because with my ops hat on, I'm totally in agreement with both of you. But with my CRO hat on, it's like, I want my RevOps person and I want them reporting to me and I want to set the strategy and it's so much more than the tools. And so I really am like one leg in each camp on this one. It's really a mixed metaphor. Software budgets. Again, in this world of efficiency and all of these tools, how do you work them? Do they sit in a central function? And so ultimately, as CFO, you own it or COO owns it? Or does each of the functional leaders own that and therefore being held to account for their spend? What we've done or what I've always done is have where the software is specific to an individual team, then that constitutes part of their budget and they should have planned that out. And they should have said, you know, at the start of the year, this is what I want. And there are some pieces of software that I guess they're clearly that. Um, so say like outreach software. Well, so I'd say out- outreach software for say BDRs, SDRs. I would say that that's absolutely clear that that should sit within a team and is under their control, um, is within their budget and they can choose where they want to spend it on, on X or Y. I'd actually say Salesforce starts off that way, but depending on you know how you use salesforce and whether it actually becomes more of a broader tool than just just a crm for the salespeople so using it for automations and processes that involve finance and, and marketing and product and data the, a lot of these are in a way unavoidable costs for a senior sales leader to say no i i don't want someone in product to be paying for a license because this is coming out of my budget so where these are kind of 
unavoidable costs. And you would say the company has taken a strategic objective that one big piece of software like Salesforce is at the core of what we're doing, that the sales leader doesn't need to take ownership for that. Because if the sales leader said, oh, I want to cut it, it's unlikely that they would be able to just pull the plug on it at a quarter's notice. The tough stuff is stuff like um, Miro or something where someone outside the product team sees it and goes, I need that. And suddenly, suddenly the, the product team are, are giving out licenses and then they're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, uh, you guys are spending more on it than I am. Those become a bit tricky, but in the, in the grand scheme of things, you know, a few Miro or Adobe licenses. Thanks so much, Reese. We're rapidly coming to the end. Before we finish, you have huge amounts of information in your mind. If anybody would like to either get in touch with you or see what you have to offer, how best to find you? Probably send me a message on LinkedIn. Awesome. And then final question for us. We've covered so many topics today. If our listeners were to only take one thing away from the conversation with you, what's the one thing they should take away? Probably one of the most important things that I try to keep in mind is that efficiency is very much dependent on the stage of your business. And like I said about in the early days, efficiency not really being important. What is important is you know, coming to market with a product that reaches product market fit and that you can scale. And at least if you have a feel for the possibility of it getting to be scalable and you know, having efficient sales and efficient delivery of that product, efficiency isn't really your friend and can actually diminish your prospects. Once you get past that point, I think, I think, if it, you know, having a mind for efficiency will do the company very, very well, regardless of, you know, whether conditions stay as they are or suddenly interest rates drop back to zero and, and there's a huge amount of money floating around. I, I think people will just have a better idea of what they can do with that money. Good. So thank you very much, Reese, for spending uh, time with us on the operations room. And thank you for listening. Uh, if you like what you hear, please subscribe or leave us a comment and we will see you next week. 